Hello and Happy New Year. Welcome to the Politics Classroom on UIC Radio, where music and culture ignite. I'm Professor Kate Floros. For those of you who are new to the show, I'm a clinical assistant professor in the political science department at UIC, and I specialize in international relations, civil wars, and U.S. foreign policy. I began this show in April 2019 as a way to explain political happenings in the United States and around the world to students who may not have a background in politics. I really want to cover topics that students are interested in learning about, so please feel free to reach out to me on Twitter, at Dr. Floros, with any show ideas you might have. So a lot happened while UIC was on break, and today we're going to talk about one of the biggest events, the U.S. drone strike on Iranian General Qasem Soleimani, and Iran's response, a rocket attack on bases in Iraq where U.S. troops were stationed. For this conversation, I'm excited to welcome Professors Norma Maruzi and Kava Asani into the classroom. There's a lot to cover, so let's get started in the politics classroom on Tuesday, January 14th, 2020. You're listening to the Politics Classroom on UIC Radio, streaming live on radio.uic.edu. I'm Professor Floros, and you can reach me on Twitter at Dr. Floros. Joining me in the classroom today is Professor Norma Maruzzi, who is an Associate Professor of Political Science and Gender and Women's Studies at UIC. She also serves as the Director of the International Studies Program. She received her bachelor's degree from Amherst College and her master's and PhD in political science from Johns Hopkins University. Welcome to the classroom, Norma. Thanks so much, I'm happy to be here. We are also now gonna be joined on the phone, so let me see if I can get the technology to work. Hello, Kaveh. Hello. Hi, how are you? Hi, how are you? Good, thank you. I was just about to introduce you, so let me do that. Um, On the phone, we have Kaveh Asani, an assistant professor of international studies and critical ethnic studies at DePaul University. He received his bachelor's and master's degrees at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and his PhD at Leiden University. So thank you so much for agreeing to be on the program today. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks. Okay, so the first question that I have is kind of a simple question with a ridiculously complex answer. And it deals with why are the United States and Iran adversaries? And kind of what led up to this very dramatic targeted asa- or targeted killing of an Iranian general? So it's hard to know where to start, right? Do we go back to mm-hmm. late December when a U.S. contractor was killed by a, an Iranian missile or an Iranian-backed missile, or the U.S. pulling out of the Iran nuclear deal in May 2018, or the Iranian revolution and embassy hostage situation in 1979, or the coup in 1953. I don't know where to start with it. <laughs> what do you guys think? Well, I mean, um, yeah, I mean, history plays a big role in this. You know, 1953 coup d'etat, which you mentioned, which is when the CIA carried out a coup d'etat against the parliamentary government in Iran that wanted to nationalize oil, was a watershed. But prior to that, I mean, there's a history of U.S.-Iranian relations prior to that. I mean, Mm -hmm. during the Second World War, you know, United States, together with Britain, occupied Iran, which was a neutral country, to kind of supply Soviet Union during the Second World War which kind of brought untold hardships upon the Iranian population. Hmm. But prior to that, you know, when Iran had its constitutional revolution, one of the first 
upheavals, popular upheavals for constitutional liberal rule in the global south, you know, together with Mexico and Turkey. I mean, Iran were, was had this movement to kind of limit its uh, autocratic monarchy. Uh, United States actually played a big role. You know, there was a the Iranian finance minister at that time was was an American who kind of was really dedicated to the cause of Iranian constitutionalists. And he was followed by another American who also became a finance minister in Iran to kind of help Iran. So the interesting, if you want to take the long-term view, is that during the 20th century, the you know, at the height of colonialism, the First World War, all the way up to the Second World War, you know, the general public as well as the political elites in Iran looked at the United States as this benign neutral power that would help them against much more powerful usurpations of colonial powers, which were, for Iran, its neighboring imperial powers were Russia, the Tsarist Russia, and Britain in, you know, and its, its, its colony in, in, in India. So the United States was really looked, as, looked at as the savior. And the 1953 coup and also the occupation during the Second World War kind of changed opinions because suddenly the ally that was perceived as being a neutral democratic helper turned out to be using... Uh, you know, Iran has in a completely instrumental way, not caring about, you know, popular will or sovereignty and kind of reimposing a increasingly autocratic and corrupt monarchy on Iran. So there's a long history. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, historical views matter, even though in the United States we tend to think that amnesia should be <laughs> the backbone of politics. But yeah. actually, you know, long-term history does matter. So these opinions change because of actions. But the current hostilities really date to 1979 mm-hmm. and the Iranian Revolution. And, uh, you know, from then on, you know, uh, I mean, uh, you know, just kind of to briefly state this, you know, the new government in Iran felt that the United States was backing a military coup like 1953 uh, against the new regime. And, you know, and there was some truth to that, although it's a bit murky, and this was much more kind of a, you know, obsession of the new and very fragile Iranian, you know, uh, post-revolution Islamist Khomeini's government that felt that the U.S. was, you know, mounting a threat. And uh, Was this before or after the embassy? Uh, well, this was right before the embassy. Okay. So the, one of the reasons that Ayatollah Khomeini, who was the leader at that time, you know, kind of supported the students taking over the embassy, there were several reasons, but one of them was actually to kind of neutralize this fear of a U.S. coup d'etat or some kind of serious, significant undermining supported by the U.S. of the new regime. And the United States, in turn, kind of began to feel uh, and take this position in successive administrations that the... You know, the Iranian regime was a vital threat to its regional interests, and more or less every single president and administration, Republican as well as Democrat, has had this basic position to kind of contain Iran or to kind of undermine it and treat it as a uh, kind of a fundamental adversary. So both of them are pretty much have been guilty, and this is like the latest escalation in that long line of hostilities that dates back to 1979. Mm. Norma, did you want to add anything to that brief history? No, I'd say that's a pretty good version of a, <laughs> of a, a long version of a brief history, but but pretty effective. I think also, um, just to kind of give it a little bit of a comparative perspective, 
I think it really has mattered in since the revolution. I mean, the, the whole issue with the, the embassy, the hostage taking, uh, was something that was a real shock to America's sense of its own its own pride, right? And in that sense, a little bit comparable to uh, the Vietnam War, you know, this, this kind of very public humiliation was seen. The interesting thing is the extent to which the rapprochement and the normalization of relationships with, with Vietnam has occurred right. uh, and has been supported by both sides, et cetera, all that. And you might wonder, well, what's the deal with Iran? And I think part of that is actually is that Vietnam, uh, although they, they, they sort of won the war in the sense of America had to leave um, quickly and, and without real planning for that, they were, they were a, a, an isolated, poor country with not a lot of regional clout. And they really were trying to focus mostly on on their own interests and then their own backyard in that sense. And once the war was over and the Cold War sort of moved on to other areas and then the issues with the Soviet Union, the U.S. wasn't particularly interested. It wasn't considered Mm -hmm. strategic. So there could be a kind of just abandonment of of sort of the region. The Middle East has never been like that. The mm. uh, Middle East has always been considered a str- in the 20th century since oil, you know, became so so important, a very strategic interest economically, militarily, and for better or worse, the U.S. has tended to manage its foreign policy in the region by backing strongmen. That's yeah. and that's really since the Second World War, as Kave explained. So there's a tends to be a huge investment in not only a single country, but a single monarchy, a real preference for sort of top-down monarchies. That was Iran until the revolution. So part of the issue was that the U.S. was so the military alliance, political, economic, Iran was considered a bastion of American, you know, foreign policy influence and the the ally, the strategic ally in the region. Mm-hmm. That to- totally changed. And the U.S., instead of recognizing, as to some extent there's been talk in Latin America, et cetera, that maybe we have to also tend to how our policies uh, turn populations against us mm-hmm. and, in fact, perhaps help make these states unstable mm-hmm. in autocratic forms. In their autocratic forms, uh, we sort of just switched over and, and invested similarly in Saudi Arabia. And Saudi and Iran are the two main regional rivals, and Iran has been able to Despite its um, its economic circumstances, sanctions, war with Iraq, etc., we backed Saddam Hussein mm-hmm. with the war with Iraq uh, before we decided that we had to, you know, take him out. Right. So, you know, they've they but they have played a bigger role, and I think that has been part of a kind of double reason why the U.S. has been so hesitant. It's not like they're just some little power that we can now be beneficent with. Oh well, we can forgive them and we can normalize. I mean, they they want to be treated. They insist on being treated as an equal at the negotiating table, and that has not been hard to accept by successive U.S. uh, administrations. Okay, but other than the U.S. supporting Iraq during the Iran-Iraq war throughout the 80s, and to my knowledge, the U.S. didn't actively participate in that. I mean, this is the closest the U.S. and Iran have come to kind of war since ever, right? I mean, like, uh, you know, maybe around the hostage crisis, there was a talk of, of, you know, military strikes, etc. But since then, right, even though they don't have diplomatic relations, even though they didn't talk to each other for a really long time, was the threat of military clashes ever high before now? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I'll just say briefly, I think, you know, we, we might want to forget that um, a number of people who are even some of them in the current administration, again, were part of the um, 
the the real supporters in the Bush administration for the Iraq War, the right. U.S. invasion of Iraq. And there was very much talk at the time that, um, you know, first Afghanistan, then Iraq, then Iran. It was it was openly talked about hmm. by a number of people, especially John Bolton is a good example. Oh, well, um, but he was yeah. right riding yeah. high at that point. Dick Cheney, these Rumsfeld, these were people who really felt that you know this was all about sort of cleaning up the whole situation, and that definitely meant going through Baghdad to Iran, uh, and that got sidetracked, right? But that was part of what was one of the issues with the Iraq War, and was um, a kind of uh, you know we might want to say whether it was a strategy or a fantasy, um, that was quite serious. It was serious at the time. There had been mobilizations, right? At the time, there were um, the Chicago City Council passed a, uh, a resolution against war with Iran. It huh. was considered a very serious threat. So if things had gone better in Iraq, we well, might actually, have invaded um, Iran? You know, just uh, just another, to add another note, actually in 1980s, um, during the Iran-Iraq war, especially in the Latter phases of it, uh, U.S. and Iran came to military clashes. Um, U.S. basically, U.S. Navy basically destroyed most of Iranian Navy in the Persian Gulf. Um, Iran had imposed, uh, you know, kind of bans on tankers, you know, in, uh, in traversing the Persian Gulf as U.S. and European support for Iraq became uh, more public, uh, became uh, more evident. Um, so they tried to kind of curtail shipping in the Persian Gulf, um, and the U.S. Navy began escorting tankers. And in the process, when you know the Iranian Navy made an attempt, they destroyed a Iranian oil um, platform as well as most of the navy. So you know, military clashes yeah. have been there uh, before. Yeah, and and, and, have and the U.S. does have bases, the Fifth Fleet. I mean, like there's a lot of U.S. military activity. Right on Iran's doorstep. So I, I in all its neighboring countries, that's correct. Iran I mean, and you know, all it's, of it's a, yeah. yeah. I, mean, I mean, there are U.S. bases in all of Iran's <laughs> neighbors. That's actually important to keep. In yeah, mind. no, absolutely. <laughs> okay, and and okay. So I don't know. I, it, you know, it's it's hard for me to think that. I mean, maybe plans were drawn up in 2003, but I just man, I can't even wrap my brain around this notion that that all that could have happened uh, yeah okay anyhow <laughs> just shows how much i don't know about a lot of things all right so this well i think i would just i would just um interrupt there a little bit that that maybe that's a good thing and uh, i think there there were definitely drags on that plan including by the u.s military people who had some knowledge and then especially for instance military you know real stake in that we're aware started to argue look this is a much bigger country it is a bigger population it is more integrated they have more experience this is not going to be a walkthrough and just as with Iraq there had been a sort of statement by elements of the US government that this would be so simple and everything would just work out really quickly and then everything will be hunky-dory for the US when it became quickly clear that that it might be more complicated the argument started to be made very strongly if this is going bad it's going to be so much worse yeah. so there has always been been some restraint but I think there often is an element in in US foreign policy of a kind of um, you know throwing our weight around yeah, and that's definitely true okay so I want to fast forward to the current situation and you know uh, a lot of people who haven't been paying attention might think 
this rocket attack that killed a U.S. contractor in Iraq in December was kind of an out-of-the-blue thing. But the tensions between the United States and Iran have been ratcheting up and escalating since the Trump administration withdrew the United States from the Iran nuclear deal. They also designated the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, which is part of the Iranian military, uh, a foreign terrorist organization. Uh, Sanctions keep being ratcheted up. Iran has responded in various ways by attacking oil tankers. The U.S. has deployed additional troops to the region. So the fact that it actually got to shooting, you know, that did not come out of the blue. But it quickly spiraled from the death of that contractor on December 27th to what ended up being the the death of of the general. So did it... Did this action take you by surprise? Were you... Because let me just say, when I saw this on TV, my hand went to my mouth, like in that picture in the Situation Room on the for the Bin Laden raid. Hillary Clinton is like holding her hand to her mouth. That was seriously me when I saw that. I couldn't believe that it had happened. Were you surprised at all that that the United States had, had committed this drone attack that killed Soleimani? Uh, well, yes. <laughs> uh, I think... Everybody was surprised, and I, I think everybody, I think a lot of people, myself included, I mean, Kaveh, I'm sure you'll speak to this as well. Were were shocked at the um, sort of the 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 ratio of the response because although the contractor was killed, that was an Iran affiliated militia, an not Iraqi Iran militia. So, I mean, not to defend, but that is different from assassinating. A, a general in a second country that's an ally, as well as killing some of our the Iraqi um, military who were in the area as well. So it was it was a real shock both at the high level of the target, the obvious lack of coordination with Iraq, the <laughs> violation of Iraqi sovereignty, the 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 a, a militia attack, and then a, uh, the assassination an assassination of a general. So I think yeah, it was a, I think it was a shock all around. Kave. Do it away in? Yes, I mean, now evidence is coming out. Yes, it was a surprise. Evidence is coming out now that within the security apparatus of the Trump administration, debates have been going on about what position to take. And, you know, this has been going on for seven, eight months now, uh, apparently, you know, since mm-hmm. at least July and, and summer. So they kind of, you know, this was sort of in the pipeline. And the logic behind it by Bolton and his his staff was to kind of create a kind of a confrontational situation that would completely shock the establishment in Iran because uh, you know on you know uh, on the Iranian side the Iranian regime has been kind of active to undermine US positions in the Middle East and in the Persian Gulf but they've been ratcheting up their their actions kind of incrementally so as not to bring about a confrontation. Mm-hmm. So what's the Bolton wing of the you know the security apparatus in the U.S. argued was that uh, an action like this, which is quite spectacular, would send the you know Iranian establishment into a shock, and whatever they do would actually exacerbate the internal crisis that they're facing, you know, within Iran itself. So they would have to respond, and because they do not want to kind of necessarily bring things to a major confrontation with the United States, 
they would appear weak. And while the Iranian regime is in the middle of a um, domestic crisis of legitimacy because of the state of the economy, of politics, of perceived corruption, of increased unemployment, and so on and so forth, that is partly caused by the sanctions, this would really cause them trouble. So I don't think, you know, I mean, we have this sense that this was done suddenly and ad hoc. I think there's evidence now that it was planned, you know, uh, for a while. And this was, I think, the logic behind it. it. It seems conceivable that this was the logic behind it. Nevertheless, I mean, the consequences will be massive, both mm-hmm. internally in Iran as well as in the region. So, they, you know, they really wanted their logic was to undermine. Yeah, we were all shocked because we didn't see this coming. Nobody saw it coming, but they had been planning this. And uh, But I don't think they have really beyond kind of like saying that, all right, this is going to cause huge problems for the Iranian regime, which ha- it has. They had not foreseen, you know, what it would mean in the long term for the region, for Iraq, for Iran, and, uh, you know, for, for, for the world at large. Okay, so the gentleman who was targeted uh, was Qasem Soleimani, who was um, a general in the Iranian military. He was directed the Quds Force in the uh, Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps. So what are the IRGC and the Quds Force, and what importance did they, those organizations, play both in Iran and across the region? Well, uh, you know, I mean, I need to explain a little bit the nature of the Iranian state. Um, You know, I mean, often it is depicted as a theocracy, the rule of the clergy, and this is very misleading. You know, the Iranian regime post-revolution has been a very hybrid creature. It has, you know, it's it's a Republican system. Um, elections matter. The parliament, the president are elected by the population. They matter, although these elections are really kind of constrained and limited. They're not competitive, but they are quite relevant. And this is the way that the 70, 80 million population really feel that they're having a say, or at least, you know, it's a, it's a uh, you know, uh, lift some pressure and, you know, they have, you know, it, it gives people a voice in, in politics. But at the same time, there's a completely non-elected side of the government, which is mainly the military uh, economic security apparatus, and the clergy are part of that. They're the visible part of that because of the, you know, like the you know, religious nature of the state, but uh, uh, you know, but they're kind of an, you know, a consolidated elite. They want to hold their positions of power. They are fearful of change and what the full democratization would mean for Iranian politics. And uh, the Revolutionary Guards are part of that establishment. I mean, uh, the name says it. They're the guardians of the revolution. They're not a national army. They're a, a elite army that defends the, the regime itself. They're a Praetorian Guard. Uh, we do have an army as well, which is a conscript army. And, you know, that army is like, a, like any other normal army is... Uh, you know, a national defense army, you know, they perform, but, but the guards, the revolutionary guards basically duplicate all of that, and they're much smaller, but uh, they're quite powerful, uh, and, you know, quite capable militarily, and in terms of their, uh, you know, uh, 
their their history and their their skill in military skills and all that um, and they've proven it through the Iraq, you know Iran Iraq war and and after that now the Quds power you know the Quds force was a branch of the revolutionary guards uh, that acted outside the borders of Iran to basically project the power of this regime uh, abroad and but also defended abroad so it was kind of like a layered defense that uh, whose justification was that um, by through his actions uh, the kind of violence civil wa- violence uh, civil wars um, terrorism and all that would be contained outside uh, elsewhere and not be allowed to kind of penetrate within Iran itself. So their image of the Quds Force within Iran was one that is kind of assuring and ensuring safety for, you know, within Iran domestically. So it's active in Afghanistan, for example, to prevent drug smuggling and or kind of the uh, infiltration of radical Sunni um, activists. The same thing. I mean, the main, the same thing on the eastern border, you know, in Syria, in Iraq. Um, the main portfolio of Soleimani was, you know, to kind of defeat ISIS uh, in Syria and in Iraq. And this is what he really kind of uh, mobilized the Syrian regime for. And, um, you know, that's what he was doing. In the process, he was also consolidating militias in Iraq and the Assad regime in Syria. Uh, and this is what has been really emphasized in the U.S. But what is not being said is that tacitly the U.S. and the Quds Force were in sort of a peaceful, uh, not alliance, but in kind of coordinating given their activities, because they, while they were fighting ISIS and al-Qaeda in Iraq and Syria. So when those threats began to be diminished and defeated, more or less, even though they still exist, sure. uh, then, you know, the kind of the hostility between U.S. and Iran came forth. And this is a moment that I think uh, Trump administration felt that uh, they should kind of take a bold move, make a bold move and change the, you know, the, the equation of this kind of like tacit coexistence and, you know, and low-scale hostility and notch it up a bit in order to kind of really undermine the domestic position of the Iranian regime. So at his funeral or as his um, casket, I guess, was uh, made a tour through Iraq and Iran, um, huge crowds came out to pay their respects. So what, h- how was he viewed inside Iran and what about the gentleman who has replaced him? Does, do, do the Iranian people even know who he is and what effect does, does yeah. losing Soleimani have on yeah. the operations of the Quds Force? Um, well, uh, let's kind of like, let's just go back to December of, uh, of 2019, you know, a mere two months ago, where, you know, there were like events in global events, uh, like in Chile, in, in Bolivia, in, uh, in Lebanon, in Algeria, in Sudan, um, uh, and elsewhere, you know, there was a global wave of protests huge global, you know, huge wave of protests within mm-hmm. Iran, especially in provincial towns and cities, against austerity measures. And these popular movement against, you know, political corruption, economic corruption, uh, inequality, uh, you know, austerity, as well as, uh, you know, 
you know the, the you know the kind of like the corruption of the political elites were put down really harshly so we don't know how many people were killed in the repression of this you know this just past month um you know the figures basically vary between uh, you know 150 to 1500 um so there's a you know the the scale was quite amazing and this hasn't happened in iran in the past 40 years on this scale uh, you know against this kind of like the poor people provincial people demonstrating because these are people who are you know the the poor the you know urban unemployed the the migrants the destitute are really like the core and the core basic supporters of of this regime this is what this regime justified itself uh when it came up in you know when it succeeded in the revolution you know it said look we are the voice of the poor mm-hmm. we are going to make create an equal society we are kind of going to change the path of uh development and the corrupt regime of you know mo- monarchy in, in order to create an egalitarian uh, moral um islamic society right and yet so when they, those folks they, protested yeah. they were put down dramatically they were put down and now this is the irony that the people who came out to kind of for the funeral of Soleimani, uh, I mean, we don't have the sociological data about this, but they were pretty much from, because they were in provincial towns, um, and, you know, like all these demonstrations happened in, in smaller cities and all that, they were pretty much the people who were demonstrating a month ago. Hmm. And this is kind of, uh, has, has kind of baffled a lot of people, but I don't think it's particularly baffling. Because the image of Soleimani was actually a general who did not have a hand in domestic Iranian politics directly. Uh-huh. His whole portfolio was to kind of fight a war outside the Iranian borders to maintain safety and security within Iran. So he was seen as a capable military man who had fairly clean hands. And that's why, okay. you know, like there was this nationalist, you know, uh, s- sentiment and outrage toward the United States because the sanctions that the U.S., the Trump administration has been posing, inclu- and as well as the Muslim ban, have made clear to the Iranian people that the U.S. administration is no friend of them. And this is very different from 1991 and 2003 when the U.S., the Bush father and the Bush son, went to war against Iraq. You know, I mean, then, uh, you know, there was, you know, there was this discourse, this view that, well, maybe after Iraq, Iran is next, and Americans will come and free us of this kind of oppressive regime. There was, you know, one of the lines of argument and sentiment was this, out of frustration. This time around, there is no such feeling, because everybody sees that Trump administration, by undermining the nuclear accord and imposing these draconian sanctions, is really impoverishing ordinary Iranians. And there's no sympathy toward the U.S. There's a lot of hostility. And then killing Soleimani was... Outra- you know, was was seen as outrageous. You know, so there was a huge, uh, you know, uh, turnout by crowds to in for Soleimani's uh, funeral uh, because they felt outrage at the United States. They uh, felt, you know, uh, that this guy was uh, had fairly clean hands, that he was a capable general, and he had had no hand in domestic uh, repression. Uh, at least that was the, you know, that was the sentiment toward him, and that's why crowds turned out, even though many of them probably were people who were a month before protesting against austerity measures and being put down by the same security forces of which Soleimani was a general. Mm. 
Let me maybe add something too for for um, some of our our listeners about just a you know a little bit of clarification about the Shia Sunni difference, mm. right? So Shia and Sunni are both main arms of Islam. They're they're Muslims, but it's not exactly the same thing. But I would say it's a little bit like the the difference between Protestants and Catholics historically, right? So we had long periods, for instance, in Europe, where where you know there were wars between Protestants and Catholics, etc. And even one one group will say the other one isn't really adequately Christian, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So there's some of that going on in the. It, there is a parallel with the. Shia-Sunni divide. Most Muslims around the world are Sunni, largely Sunni. Mm -hmm. uh, but there, there are Shia in many places, and there are a couple of countries that are majority Shia. Iran is one. Iraq is one. Mm -hmm. uh, there are large proportions of Shia in in Lebanon, in Syria, and in other in other countries in the region as well. But in terms of and, and uh, Bahrain is majority Shia. Right. There's a big proportion, quite a large proportion of uh, of Shia in Saudi Arabia, right. but they are very very much controlled mm -hmm. uh, because particularly Saudi Arabia claims itself as the leader of the Sunni world. Right. But and and just to put in that Bahrain, even though it's a majority Shia country. Ha is ruled by a, exactly. a Sunni family. It's ruled by a Sunni monarchy and when there were popular protests during the Arab Spring for increased uh, representation, etc., in Bahrain, uh, the Saudis sent in troops to put those down. So uh, that's what's going on. Yeah. But what I want to get at here is that as with Protestant Catholic, right, that for for decades and hundreds of years in Ireland, uh, there was an assumption that this was an, an inevitable, historical, endless, violent controversy between the two. And lo and behold, it was at least the bloodshed was for the most part stopped with the Good Friday Agreement right when when in some there was a will from various sides to end violence violence can be ended. We aren't there yet obviously with the Shia Sunni sectarian violence but what's important about this is that for the most part the really radical violent extremist global terrorist groups Al-Qaeda, ISIS, other related um, related organizations are all Sunni extremists. Right. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're backed by explicitly by um, Sunni majority states, but they are Sunni extremists. And the ideology of these extremists tends to be to target sort of in in ascending order of of demonization fellow Sunnis who are not adequately loyal to them or supporting their version of Sunni Islam, Christians and foreigners, and Shia. Shia are the most demonized groups for these ex Sunni extremists. Okay. That is very important to state, right? And I don't think it's realized adequately often in the U.S. mainstream uh, what that means for Shia populations where ISIS is being very active. This was true in Iraq. It was true in in Syria. They they are the Shia are then considered heretics. They are considered the primary target to eliminate. That doesn't just mean armies or states. That means human beings. Right. That means civilian casualties. So in that sense, Soleimani, who was a very successful, effective general in fighting these extremist groups outside of Iran, was. I'm just trying to back up and explain sure. why that was so important inside. These are, are were um, violent terrorist organizations active on the ground, gaining territory just outside the borders of Iran. So a very effective general who is very good at 
pushing back, defeating these violent non-state organizations, and therefore securing the territory and the civilian population in Iran, and who was considered to have both, again, as Kaveh said, clean hands in terms of corruption, and also to be not allied with any, any one side or the other of the political uh, dynamics in the Iranian state. He was considered one of the few people who really had good working relations with the reformers, with moderates, with the harder line conservatives. So he was, in that sense, a national figure. He was beloved of people for sec- for achieving their security in an extremely dangerous situation in which it's not just that you have wars are on the borders, but you have very scary groups targeting you as a religious uh, person, even if you're not religious, right? This mm-hmm. is this is how that worked. So I think what um, Kaveh is saying, that's why uh, also for the U.S., assassinating this person was going to make people in Iran feel, you really don't have our back, right? Mm. You're taking out the most effective general who's been able to defeat these other groups. Precisely when you've pulled out of Syria, they're still active. There's a threat that they're going to come back. You clearly don't care if they come after us. So it it certainly doesn't make um, people inside Iran happy. It does destabilize things within Iran, but it certainly does not put the U.S. in the position of savior or benevolent ally for for most, most ordinary Iranians. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I definitely want to talk about if this idea that if the United States and Iran have common enemies and America's allies are backing America's enemies, how this hasn't been worked out already. So, But we're going to take a break first. I'm Professor Floros in the politics classroom on UIC Radio, where music and culture ignite. And I'm joined by Professors Norma Maruzzi and Kaveh Esani. We're going to take a break and we'll be right back. Welcome back to the politics classroom on UIC Radio, where music and culture ignite. This is Professor Floros, and I am in the classroom today with Professors Norma Maruzzi and Kaveh Esani who are talking about Iran and what is going on over there. So as we went to break, I made this comment that it sounds like that Iran and the United States have common enemies. Why has that not led to a closer diplomatic relationship? I will just say that that's always a question many of us have been asking ourselves, and and both of us, I'm sure, can respond to this. Certainly during the war um, in Afghanistan against al-Qaeda, um, Iran was very active, quietly coordinating. There was quite a bit of coordination between U.S. military and Iranian military who were both fighting al-Qaeda. You know, you one would think, again, that, that uh, similar goals in terms of containing ISIS in Iraq and Syria, but Iran has always charted its own independent path as opposed to putting itself, positioning itself as a junior ally Mm. uh, following U.S. interests. So that means it's a little bit like, you know, with Russia and the U.S. in Syria, right? Different, different determinations of how effectively to oppose ISIS and whether that is the main thing to do or the main thing to do is what the U.S. decided was to try to support independent anti-ISIS fighters who were also against the government, the um, Assad government, you know, so there are differences of um, strategy or outcome. And and yet there is constantly this sort of question by many observers that 
what, what, where this sort of deep-seated hostility continues despite what would seem to be very pragmatic U.S. strategic interests. Yeah. Kaveh, what do you think? Well, um, I think, you know, in addition to what uh, Norma was saying, I think for this Iranian regime, much like the United States, you know, having a kind of a external enemy provides a, um, a cohesion and some kind of justification, uh, domestic mm-hmm. justification for, for its own policies. I mean, uh, you know, the, after the 1979 revolution, Iranian society has been through a major war, a huge political turnovers, you know, and experimentations, including uh, reformists kind of trying to change the system from within, kind of normalize its domestic as well as foreign policy, a very harsh populist phase under the previous president, Ahmadinejad, and then currently with the president, Rouhani, you know, trying to kind of bring about a, you know, sign a nuclear accord and normalize relations and then being kind of undermined in the process. Throughout this, the established political elite, the non-elected established political elite, feel that, and, you know, have this position that the United States is the intractable enemy whose only interest is to ultimately undermine and bring about, undermine them and bring about a regime change. So they feel, um, you know, maybe partly correctly, that they are in an existential fight. Mm. And in order to justify their own position domestically, they always point out to this, you know, irreconcilable hostility toward the U.S. and as well as as Israel. Uh, So I think it's a, you know, it's an existential Mm. position for them that they would kind of be willing to be quite pragmatic and normalize relations with a lot of you know, possible other rivals or adversaries, you know, including you know, Saudi Arabia, EU, China, Russia, so name it. You know. But the U.S. remains this one power that they feel is kind of hell-bound to kind of undermine them. Uh, is this correct or not? You know, partially. Sorry. But that kind of like that state of, you know, uh, exception towards U.S. is kind of ingrained in them, uh, you know, in, in this political elite. So and increasingly, this has become a huge problem with the domestic population in Iran. I mean, the vast majority of Iranians were born after the 1979 revolution. Yeah. It's a young population, 80 million. They never voted for the Islamic Republic. They had to sacrifice a lot. You know, they are undergoing tremendous hardships. They, you know, there's a large popular sentiment of hostility and alienation toward the political system as well as its foreign policy. So it's not that they, this regime necessarily represents the vast majority of the Iranian population. It doesn't. All the indications are that it doesn't. But kind of maintaining the, you know, this focus on the U.S. as, as the external enemy kind of gives them some kind of coherence and justification. It Um, it sounds like uh, the United States plays for uh, Iran the similar role to what it played in Cuba with Castro, right? As long as the U.S. was there breathing down its neck, the Castros had to stay in power to to keep Cuba safe. Yeah, there are similarities. And, you know, but let's remember that this is exactly the kind of, you know, the kind of justification for U.S. foreign policy as well from the Cold War onward. I mean, the successive U.S. administrations have relied on this rhetoric of 
who are the bad guys, sure. <laughs> who are our allies, who's with us and who's against mm-hmm. us. You know, whoever's not with us is against us. You right. know, I mean, this has been the cornerstone of U.S. foreign policy. So it takes two to tango in this game. And, you know, like you brought up Cuba, I think it's a great example. You know, demonization of the Cuban regime for all its flaws, you know, in comparison to other dictatorships, quite harsh military dictatorships in Central America or South America has been the cornerstone of U.S. foreign policy as mm-hmm. well. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's problematic on both sides, I think. So earlier we were talking about the fact that the people inside Iran saw Soleimani as a protector of the state, that he was basically fighting them over there so they wouldn't have to fight them at home. Or protector of the country. Of the country. Uh, not, yeah. Okay. That, but that is not how many of like, the U.S., Israel, Saudi Arabia saw the activities of the Quds Force. So organizations like Hezbollah, Hamas are designated as terrorist organizations, both received support from Iran. The Houthi rebel group in Yemen, the Assad regime proper, and then all of these militias in Iraq. So what strategic role did support of these groups throughout the region, what what was the goal for supporting these groups? I don't want to monopolize the conversation, but I do think it's important to kind of put a corrective there. Oh. You know, I think, uh, you know, I, I, I kind of try to emphasize this, that I think the perception of Soleimani was that he is kind of a uh, sort of a national figure, that mm-hmm. he's, you know, he's not part of domestic politics. That was the perception that was maintained and projected. And his portfolio of the Quds Force, the, you know, the branch of the Revolution Guards that he guided or headed was, it was an external portfolio. It was an international portfolio. Sure. But when he had a posi- you know, when he had the chance to take a position, he kind of proved himself a supporter of conservatives and uh, and the military establishment. But nonetheless, because his hands weren't involved in repression mm-hmm. and uh, you know direct you know intervention in domestic politics in Iran, he appeared to be kind of more benign and okay. his you know, relative confidence in what he was doing played in his favor, and he kind of cultivated that image. So it's important to kind of realize and not say, I mean, I'm not saying that he was a he was an angel by any means. Now, regarding his international, look, I think it's important to realize, to get beyond, and this is why, you know, that's what we academics do, you know, to kind of actually point out that uh, simplifying rhetoric and framing doesn't help anyone. That uh, uh, so, if you look at the scene in Syria or in Iraq or in Yemen, I don't think you can find any good guys. I mean, that you know, that is the reality. That you have a civil war, where you know, in reaction to a moment of popular democratic grassroots upheaval in 2011, 2012 during the Arab Spring, where the gen- you know the general population in Syria. Uh, you know, try to kind of claim a voice in politics and hold their own government to account. And that government, you know, decided for complex reasons, partly having to do with geopolitics of the region, uh, it decided that it was in, you know, it was caught in an existential fight and it adopted a completely military attitude toward its own population. 
So the Syrian government, you know, in the carnage that we see in Syria, the Syrian government is implicated and has the prime responsibility because it is using absolute violence against its own population. Iranian and Russians and other allies of Syria, including Qasem Soleimani, were implicated in this because they were consolidating that regime. On the other hand, everybody else has been involved in the militarization of Syria. United States directly has troops there, has militarized the situation. Obama administration came out and said that, you know, right at the beginning, you know, said that Hafez Assad must go. So he closed off, you know, his administration and the U.S. closed off any avenue and possibility of diplomatic approach to the conflict within Syria. They militarized it. EU was responsible for that. Uh, the Syrian regime looked across the Mediterranean Sea and saw what had happened in Libya, the chaos that had happened there and what had happened to the establishment there, which, which were basically killed off. And it figured that, okay, you know, this is a fight for, you know, survival, and we're going to fight for our survival. And the adversaries of, of the Syrian regime are being supported by the U.S., by Turkey, by Saudi Arabia, by Qatar, by the UAE, by EU, and so on and so forth. So it seems like, once again, in the Middle East, we have these civil confrontations, these civil wars, that have everybody else in the region and globally involved, uh, you know, and using various factions there as their own proxies for their own selfish interests, the big victim of which being the general Syrian population. Sure. Now, Qasem Soleimani and Iran are implicated in this. You know, they were kind of involved in that militarization. But it's important to kind of emphasize that so is everybody else. You know, that nobody has sought seriously to bring about a diplomatic closure to this disastrous humanitarian crisis. But the prime responsibility, again, you know, lies with the Syrian government that uh, has, you know, I mean, as a state, as a government, you cannot adopt pure brutality toward your own domestic opposition. You know, that, you know, that is, you know, that is their prime responsibility. Mm -hmm. And Qasem Soleimani and Iran were implicated in this. I think that's, um, it's especially true. I mean, Syria is just a tragedy in every, in every direction. Um, but in the broader sense, I mean, when you so again, sort of general media and whatnot, that uh, the sort of characterization, Suleimani is a, is a bad guy, and and he supports all these bad guys, terrorists. Uh, we have to look at how U.S. foreign policy in the region has been conducted for decades under various administrations, and and again, I sort of leaving maybe Syria aside, a civil war, a mess, or something, but picking up, for instance, both Hezbollah and Hamas, right? Designated terrorist organizations, so bad, bad, bad. But Hezbollah is actually a part of the Lebanese state, mm -hmm. right? They have a military arm, but they have a, a, a parliamentary arm. They are a main party, if not the dominant party, but a, a, a power-sharing party in the Lebanese state. So to, and and the U.S. has never quite clarified what that means to designate a, a part of a, a, a sort of new neutral and, if anything, somewhat allied state, uh, Lebanon, that part of their, one of their uh, political parties is considered a terrorist. Mm -hmm. Why is that? Because Hezbollah started as a militia that was specifically intended to organize the population in uh, southern Lebanon and to stand against against Israel, but particularly against Israeli military aggression. Israel had invaded Lebanon several sure. times, those regions, etc., and they were quite successful at it. What the U.S., regional Middle East policy has tended to be to pick pick winners or who we think are going to be winners as our allies. 
right now it's it's basically uh, Israel and Saudi Arabia, put all our investments in there, and then sort of go along with whoever is uh, sort of the enemy or just not the very good friend of our friend uh, must be an enemy. And so we have designated Hezbollah, Hamas, not to defend Hamas necessarily, but Hamas has been running the Gaza Strip mm-hmm. now for years and years. They're not going anywhere. Yeah. They're under even a, a completely severe boycott. They're isolated. I mean, that's a humanitarian crisis, but a whole different one. But nonetheless, I mean, this idea that they're just by just saying that these really entrenched, quasi often state actors, we can just call them terrorists, and that will put them in the same level of disorganized uh, militia groups, etc., and that therefore where you get alliances, right? Uh, so is... Russia, etc. I mean, these are yeah. these are organized political and military organizations that have strong roots locally that aren't going anywhere for better or worse. That have uh, large backers outside the country as well as in their local populations. So, for the U.S. to to sort of demonize them, I would say it's not exactly thought thoughtlessly, but again, strategically, it certainly hasn't particularly gotten us anywhere, Mm-mm. right? And it's a sign, I think, of, again, that sort of confusion with U.S. foreign policy in the region, even just in terms of U.S. interests, over longer terms, over how to actually address what's going on on the ground in states, in terms of state rivalries, in terms of what is U.S. interest, is that always best served by having all of our eggs in a couple of baskets that are states that have problematic relations with large elements of their population, let's put it that way. I'm thinking of, for instance, Israel with the Palestinians, but Saudi with its own country. And the example of that, I mean, really, again, the prime example of that is what happened with Iran. Iran was our key ally in the region Mm -hmm. when we were not as invested in Israel. Uh, We were not invested in the same way in in the Saudi and the the other Arab uh, Gulf states. And it collapsed because of authoritarian internal problems, etc. And we took that uh, very much as a personal affront. And this it doesn't it hasn't been very effective for us but we continue to sort of follow the same thing and then in a popular framework that means that Suleimani is just identified as a bad guy who supports bad guys terrorists which terrorist why who exactly is a terrorist right. I mean all of that question kind of gets that's the kind of thing it's good to discuss in a something like this but is also really important to understanding what's going on and why it doesn't seem to be getting any better yeah, I tell my students that uh, nobody calls somebody else a terrorist to compliment them, right? I mean, it, it comes with a lot of baggage. And if the United States doesn't negotiate with terrorists, you've now just taken large chunks of of powerful players off the table to negotiate with. Right. And who do we call a terrorist and, and sometimes with... Um who we call an ally who's sort of done unfortunate things, right? <laughs> right. I mean, you know, yeah. some, some of this is <laughs> right. those issues too. Okay, so getting back to Soleimani, he was targeted by a U.S. drone outside the Baghdad, Iraq airport. And the response from Iran was to target bases where U.S. forces were stationed in Iraq. So Iraq seems to be put squarely in the middle of of these two forces what how how are they doing what what is uh what is the fallout or the implications for iraq in these uh developing issues i just say briefly to that this is again uh one of these in some ways predictable but apparently surprising to parts of the u.s administration 
after effects of this. So we were in a period before the targeting of Soleimani that there were there were protests in Iran. They were against the regime because of economic, political reasons, etc. As Kaveh has said, in Iraq there was increasing protests against what was seen as Iranian influence, un- corruption, undue um, you know political networking, etc. That was. But this attack within Iraqi sovereign territory has done something similar with making ordinary Iraqis feel like we are not just your backyard, that you can, because also Iraqi military was killed uh, as well. So there is a, it actually attended, of course, there are people in Iraq, uh, communities that were happy that to have Soleimani taken off the table. But having it happen the way it did, that doesn't make a country happy, right? Uh, little, no uh, early, no coordination. This was a, clearly only a U.S. operation. This was not done in conjunction with the Iraqi state or the Iraqi military. So it is actually, if anything, strengthened to some extent or, or lessened the overt hostilities against Iran right now and, and, and uh, stoked some Irani, uh, Iraqi nationalism across the board, I would say. And in in contrast, it seems like the Iranians contacted the Iraqi government in advance of their missile strikes so that Iraq knew what was coming, right? So there was maybe not coordination in that Iraq said, sure, go ahead, but at least they knew that those those missile attacks from Iran were coming. Yeah. 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 I mean, you know, the point was, you know, obviously to make a response to the killing of Soleimani, but avoid escalation. And it seems there was a real a, a, an intention to avoid casualties. Right. Uh, and th- and I will say that when I heard hearing the news, it that's the moment that it I really thought this is this is this is a nightmare because I one assumes when one hears that bases have been bombed that that's a lot of casualties and I thought wow and what will the US do and it's just unimaginable where we're all going to be <laughs> in 24 hours. So then to hear that that, that there had been no casualties was quite remarkable and d- did seem to indicate that there was there was quite a bit of coordination. It was intended to be a symbolic response very much you know effective in that sense but without but with without crossing a line so that but that of course plays a little better in Iraq uh, probably that at least there was we that's how usually one treats one's allies and I think it it was not helpful to uh, U.S. Iraqi relations, as we saw with the parliamentary vote sure. about afterwards to have a sense that we're supposed to be allies and the U.S. sort of does what it wants. So is there is the Iranian population going to be satisfied with 22 ballistic missiles that didn't kill anybody? Are, are we should we expect either a, more of a response from Iran or from some of these groups that had previously been supported and friendly with Soleimani? Well, I think, uh, you know, I mean, the scene has changed drastically, you know, by the downing of this airplane, oh, um, the Ukrainian airplane, killing 170 people, you know, most of them Iranians of dual nationality. Uh, you know, uh, that you know, things have happened in succession. And, uh, you know, even during Soleimani's funeral in his native city of Kerman, uh, you know, a huge crowd turned out and 70 people were killed by this, you know, by the crush of the crowd. And then the shooting down of this airplane and then, you know, occurred, which it took a few days for the, for the Iranian government to actually admit that it had done it. 
when all the evidence was pointing to it. Uh, you know, initially they denied it, and then they had to turn it so, to to admit it. And this has really changed the tone because, uh, you know, to, to give you an example, so you know, I mean, Iranians tend to deal with a lot of acerbic humor uh, to kind of toward you know difficult political situations. So, you know, there are all these you know, cynical jokes going around that, you know, Americans shoot a missile, we die. We shoot missiles, we die. Aww. You know, we hold a funeral, we die. You know, the an airplane flies over our head, you know, we die. Nobody shoots anything, we still die, right? Mm. So there's this sense that, you know, the, you know, if there was a nationalist sentiment toward Soleimani's killing, this has not changed with, uh, you know, and it's been replaced by absolute outrage at a government that shot down an airplane instead of just grounding all, you know, all flights mm-hmm. uh, to prevent casualties at any cost. And people now, I mean, are turning out for demonstrations, pointing to the number of people killed in the December demonstrations against austerity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, the funeral and then, you know, this airplane tragedy, criminal tragedy, holding, you know, calling for accountability and saying that, look, this is what your foreign policy has brought about, you know, all this, you know, the, the, the weight of the sanctions, the, uh, you know, the uh, killing of Soleimani, the, you know, and they're kind of pointing out to the unaccountability and the incompetence of, of the regime and saying that, look, you know, we are being victimized, you know, we are the victims in all of this, no matter what you do, you know, no matter what the justification is for it, it's the ordinary people who are paying the, the you know, who are paying the price and the cost. So the mood has really changed. And what we're seeing now is a growing wave of artists, intellectuals, for example, pulling their films from, you know, festivals, Mm. athletes kind of declaring publicly their outrage at what had happened. So, for example, the volleyball team or the, you know, the soccer team, you know, that are kind of very popular uh, suddenly came out and declared that outrage at what happened. So all these public figures as well as students and other demonstration demonstrators are kind of really taking a position against the Iranian government for bringing about the current situation, which is really kind of weighing on the population. In the end, if war happens, it is ordinary people who've already experienced the war in the 1980s and don't mm-hmm. want any part of it mm-hmm. that will be the main victims and will have to pay the price. Well, I could talk about this for hours, but I know that my guests have other commitments. So I want to thank Norma Maruzzi and Kaveh Asani for coming on the politics classroom to talk to me about this issue. Thank you so much. And you are welcome back anytime. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much. Okay, we are going to take a break, but we will be back in the politics classroom on UIC radio where music and culture ignite. Welcome back to the Politics Classroom on UIC Radio, streaming live at radio.uic.edu. I'm Professor Floros, and you can reach me on Twitter at Dr. Floros. So I am now joined in the classroom by Cole Gunter, a senior political science major who I strong-armed into coming into the classroom today. And he strong-armed his friend and roommate, or soon-to-be roommate, maybe, UIC political science alum, Raza Hawk. Guys, welcome to the politics classroom. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. How's it going? It's going very well. While the songs were playing, we were trying to figure out what these guys wanted to talk about and they did the very mature finger to the nose and I lost 
And so it's up to me. So I'm. you guys were listening to a lot of my conversation with professors Maruzzi and Asani. What did you have any thoughts or questions that came out of that conversation or any information that you wanted to add? So you all talked a little bit about the response from sort of, I guess, the Iranians and asked the question whether or not the Iranian people will be satisfied with military strike that didn't really wasn't really successful at hurting an American's back. I guess, do you know a little bit more like how the any like insight from the people of Iran who sort of reacted to this? Because I think I saw, like, during the missile strikes, I think I saw, like, messages being spread inside Iran that were then translated and, like, reshared on Twitter outside that were, like, everyone was well aware that they were sort of a show rather than, like, an actual attack back. Okay, see, so I have not been following the internal reaction, but I thought that the initial reports coming out of Iran were, like, 80 dead, that there was this huge casualty count which freaked out people inside the United States until the U.S. would do the damage assessment. Because one of the things that that people were getting really frustrated about is that the administration did not really make much of a statement. There was some talk that maybe the president would make a national address. And then, I guess, cooler heads prevailed and they decided they'd wait, see what happened, and they'd talk in the morning. But there wasn't a lot of information coming out of the White House. So... I think initially somewhere there was a report about a lot of casualties and then not so much. So I don't know. I don't know if the, you know, what the Iranian public was thinking before news of this airline being shot down came to light. How tragic. That was, that was terrible. Yeah, it was a large casualty count. It was a big shift from the like missile strikes, not having this large civilian count, right? Then you have a whole airplane. Yeah. I think what's really interesting as well is that a lot of the conversation or dialogue that I've been involved with just colloquially often boils down to like a conversation of World War Three, because that's like the eminent threat, right? Like everyone's afraid of this large, large scale war happening. And I think it's been really interesting to talk through one, like the historical precedent of the Iranian regime and how they like to engage or prefer to engage in combat via proxy war rather than by direct conflict. Okay. So I think that's been interesting, just like maybe that is because of that historical precedent, we probably wouldn't see something as like large scale war because they would prefer to do it via proxy. So what are your thoughts in general about one, like the Iranian precedent towards proxy and whether or not or the probability of that being like the route that they take now versus a large scale conflict? Well, I don't think a large scale conflict is in anybody's interest, the United States or Iran. And I think that, and but even if there were a conflict, I think World War Three would be overstating it. Yeah. Because they Definitely. don't have a nuclear weapon. I, you know, Russia and China are not going to launch on behalf of Iran. No. So, I mean, but both could, well, Iran couldn't do that much, I mean, couldn't really do anything against the American homeland. They just don't have that kind of reach. Capability, yeah. Or, you know, I mean, they may have like a cell or something, but, but you know, we're not going to see, you know, massive ballistic missiles dropping on every American city. Right. But the U.S. does have allies in the region, right? And primarily, I think Israel would be the logical first target because mm -hmm. you know as our guest mentioned Israel is also part of the existential threat to the Iranian government 
uh, and they're so much closer at hand. Much and closer. and there are these proxy groups sur- around Israel that would have the capability of doing something. My concern is, and and obviously from the conversation, like I am not keyed in to, to all the, the, the details and the complexities of, of this situation. But one thing that I've been thinking about was, one thing that I didn't mention was after the contractor was killed and then the United, the United States did, I think, more drone strikes yeah. against militia, Iraqi militia leaders that had been backed by Iran and killed several uh, leaders as well as rank and file. And then a response was kind of the storming of the U.S., embassy in Baghdad which is kind of reminiscent of the 1979 right and and one thing when I when I, I first read about I read headlines and I was like what what how did they get inside like what and then the more I read is you know the the marines that were guarding were not using lethal force right they were using tear gas they were using rubber bullets they were trying not to fire if they could help it you know so that could have quickly turned into a bloodbath had the right. United States decided to go that route. But I'm pretty sure that that, you know, takeover of the outside of the embassy was called off in large part because Suleimani said, you're done. We're done. Let's go. Right. So the question is, if he had that level of control over the operations of these groups, with him gone, will they act independently or are they still kind of taking direction from Tehran? And and so that's the question that has kind of been bubbling in my brain over the last couple of days is, you know, Iran itself is probably not going to do much more officially. It's possible they will kind of direct their proxies but even that would be an obvious provocation that the line would be drawn directly back to Iran but but what if these groups act independently and without someone of Soleimani's caliber will the current leadership of the Quds Force be able to rein them back in and that is something that I don't I don't have the answer to. And and maybe that's an overblown concern. But do you know if they've appointed a new person to lead the Quds Force? And like, is there the same sort of like clout behind him, whether or not he can fill the shoes? So, yes, uh, within hours, I think, of his death, there was the second in command was promoted. I don't have his name off the top of my head. He definitely doesn't have the fame the name face name recognition apparently um Soleimani's face was on like billboards only second to the ayatollah wow so he was very well known i don't think this guy has his face on billboards <laughs> yet <laughs> but i don't know right like so Su- Soleimani was the face he was also the brains but was he all the brains like it could be that this guy was just quieter mm-hmm and he, they, that all the militia, you know, the militias know him and they're going to, you know. Soleimani's your populist military leader there. Wow. He's, I don't, anyhow, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. But uh, I, you know, it's, 
I don't think uh, I certainly don't know enough about the new guy to know like what kind of respect he would he would uh, carry with these groups right so I guess shifting gears do you think the United States is going to be satisfied with just uh, they shot missiles but nobody died let's call it a day or do you think that there might be further US action well the US has already announced new sanctions right so I mean this is part of the ratcheting up right there was what's that and boots on the ground and more soldiers to the region and a, a redirection of soldiers in Syria toward force protection rather than the fight against ISIS. And, you know, it's, and we say the United States, the United States has built a pretty good sized coalition of countries in this anti-ISIS fight. If the U.S. is going to get distracted, everybody else is going to go home. Right. And so. ISIS regrowth. Yeah. I mean, like it's, and the whole, well, when when the Trump administration pulled the U.S. troops out of the north, leaving the, the Kurds to kind of fend for themselves, you know, that was that was bad enough. But now if you're like really taking your eye off the entire ball, that could that could prove to be, I think, be be really problematic. Yeah. ISIS has lost what, like, I think the statistics are anywhere between 70 and 80 percent of their land. Oh, I thought it was more than that. It might be a little more than that. Like, I mean, th- I, they don't have any like cities anymore. Right. Yeah, right. But, but they, like, like, desert outposty kind of yeah, things. Yeah. And, like, cash buried in the desert and, like, <laughs> stuff like that. But a lot of their fighters have left as well. Foreign fighters have left as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And a lot of those foreign fighters were coming from, I think it was, ah, uh, man, region, country next to Pakistan. Starts with a B. Why am I forgetting this? Starts with a B? Yeah, right. Uh, Bangladesh? Yeah, yeah, a lot of oh. Bangladeshi fighters. Oh, starts with a see if you had taken any of my f- <laughs> i uh, took ir with shenaker <laughs> with who shenaker amy did you take it during the summer no it was a uh, fall semester 2016 amy shenaker she was a ta under tepe or she worked with tepe tepe helped her get her placement at uic yeah amy no she was super young she's a grad student did not teach 184 uh, uh no it was 130 yeah yeah interchange but <laughs> Oh, do they? Did they? They stole my map quizzes. Yeah. Okay, those are my I took maps. Those map quizzes. Yes. Okay. Well, if I you had taken more, if you had taken more IR classes, you would have had to take more map quizzes. But mm. um, anyhow, so sorry, I'm I'm getting on Reza's case because he graduated with a political science degree and never took one of my classes. So I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I shake my fist at him. <laughs> Cole, on the other hand, is now in his third 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 class with me. You poor soul. My and degree will be worth less than Colt's. I believe that that is true because yeah. <laughs> my name will not be on your transcript. Yeah. Okay. So what else? Domestic politics. I'm game. Global politics. Mm-hmm. Why don't we take a break and we'll hash it out amongst ourselves. This is Professor Floros in the politics classroom with political science senior Cole Gunter and UIC political science alum Raza Hawk. We're going to take a break. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Politics Classroom on UIC Radio, where music and culture ignite. Welcome back to The Politics Classroom on UIC Radio, streaming live (laughs) on radio.uic.edu. I'm Professor Floros, and you can reach me on Twitter at Dr. Floros. I am in the classroom with Cole Gunter, a senior at UIC majoring in political science and a UIC political science graduate, Reza Hawk. 
So both of you guys were, and Cole, you still are, involved in mock trial. That's kind of why you're hanging around, because you have mock trial tonight. That's right. I don't know what mock trial is, so why don't why don't you give me a quasi-brief, thorough explanation of what the heck mock trial is? Definitely. I actually got to rehearse this quite a bit at like the information sessions that we do at the start of the year. Um, so ultimately what we do is we're given either a criminal or civil case, and it's on a rotating year-by-year basis. So like we did civil last year, criminal this year. We're given the case, they lay out all nine different witnesses you can call some are prosecution locked some are locked the defense and then with the don't wi- use don't use jargon what do you mean by that like they are always like on they the can only be called by the defense yeah. or only be called by the prosecution okay. right and so then you sort of build your case around the stories and facts that they give you so it's the same case all season all year yeah except so- it gets updates yeah, they change it. They'll like go through and edit. They'll change facts. So if like the defense is winning 55% of the time, oh. they obviously want to keep it as balanced as they can. So they'll add some more bad facts for the defense, some good ones for the prosecution okay. to try and balance it out. Okay. But their cases are remarkably balanced, though, year to year. Like they're pretty split 50 50. Yeah, it's normally like 51%. And they're like, whoa, that's way too much. <laughs> and, so, and so they go ahead and clean it back up. Okay. And so we're given like all these facts and stories. Like each of the witnesses have an affidavit david or if it's like the criminal defendant they had a sworn deposition where like an attorney came in and asked them questions or like an interrogation where they a were brought detective. into the station yeah the detective like asks some questions and then you have all that information and you sort of build a prosecution case so either you're trying to convict the person who we think did it or you're either making a defense case where you're like ah this guy's totally innocent um, and you build your case around it obviously you you're only allowed to call three witnesses on each side and so of the nine available there are some that you're guaranteed to get, some that you're not guaranteed to get. Normally, we always like to rely on like strong witnesses that you can rely on. Like the detectives are really popular choice because he sort of outlines the case and things like that. So, are the who plays these witnesses? Students, students. other students, a lot of from them. your team or their team, from our, our team. team. But then they have their own students who are playing their own witnesses. So basically, when you walk into a tournament, for example, there's going to be four rounds. With those four rounds, you're going to have to do two prosecution or plaintiff and then two defense rounds. So you're guaranteed two and two. Okay. And so when you walk into those rooms, it's you and your nine teammates, 10 of you together, and your job was to fill those roles. So it's all predetermined. You can pre-write most of your materials, but a lot of what muck trial is, is about putting you on your feet and forcing you to think quickly. Okay. But when you walk into those rooms in that round, six of you are competing out of the 10 three attorneys and three witnesses so your three attorneys are doing objection battles and giving direct examinations and cross-examinations opening statements closing statements and then your witnesses are also giving their testimony uh, and then being cross-examined by the other team's attorneys so it's a full-on trial that we do each trial is about three hours Um, you have a couple judges in the room Um, and who are they judges can vary so Um, much they can be like attorneys in the area they can be other coaches from other schools sometimes you get law students who just come in and are like volunteering their saturday do you get actual judges we do get actual judges sometimes we've had some really really interesting really really prominent people judging because they probably did mock trial sure um either at the collegiate level or at the law school level at the law school level it's called trial advocacy instead of mock trial but like a lot of them recognize like the benefit that it can have and so they come back to help the community i remember when i was in high school some i don't even know why my class went and i don't know who 
anyhow, we went to the county courthouse mm. and we sat. Uh, well, they did a mock thing for oh. us. Oh, that's cool. And I got picked to be in the jury. I <laughs> think, I think. I like my teacher told them to pick me and then I became the jury four person. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and they did this. Of course you did. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you mean by that. <laughs> and so they did this thing, but like nobody could hear them. Like none of the audience could hear them and the jury box could barely hear them. Yikes. And I'm like later when we were giving our feedback, even though I was in high school, I was not shy about giving feedback. <laughs> and I said, nobody can hear you. And they're like, oh, that's his like, because it, it was a real attorney who was doing this. And they're like, oh, that's his like style. He goes really quiet so that he can like come in for the kill or something. And I'm like, yeah, well, that didn't help all the really bored high school students who could not, who had no yeah. idea what was going on. Anyhow. That's wild. I mean, that's one thing that we work on a lot, too, is, like, making sure... I mean, we practice at the Daily Center downtown, like, the courthouse, and so we practice in courtrooms. We, like, sit in the witness stand. We we have a judge, like, presiding over, and so you have to practice and make sure that everyone can hear you. Uh, one of the things that we talk about a lot is mock trial is, like, 90% performance, 10% content, because <laughs> a lot of it comes down to who can, like really present or, like, be confident enough in what they're saying when it comes to, like, objection battles or who, like can embody their witness the best who can like stand as an attorney and seem like a real life attorney the most because more often than not mo most people are like the high school kids in the back of the room even if they can hear it, they just don't care yeah. so are, are are these all bench trials or do you have a jury so they or technically we have judges there so they like are bench trials but for like the sake of the rounds most of them are treated as jury trials so like during pre-trial prior to the trial beginning normally the attorney for each side an attorney for each side will go ahead and go through pre-trial matters so you'll go ahead and set some like outlines boundaries rules you'll ask the judge for their preferences in terms of like approaching witnesses right so like if i want to approach my witness do i have to ask the judge or do i not have to ask the judge and those types of preferences the judge will lay out for you mm -hmm. one of those is whether or not we can treat it as a jury trial and treating as a jury trial means that you would direct your opening statements and closing statements to the jury box even Which if that empty. jury box is empty okay yeah. sometimes like, there'll there be one judges, judge there yeah. like if there are two judges one of the judges will go sit in the jury box to just make everyone feel better <laughs> there are timekeepers who like there are specific time limits for like your openings and closings whether or not you're talking to your witness or the other witness and so they'll like keep track of that and they often sit in the jury box too so it's a little more full and you're not just staring down one person but a lot of times you're staring down one yeah. person so if I was on your mock trial team, would I be like Detective Floros all season or you all know how to do all the parts? So you definitely have to know how to do all the parts if you want to be good at this activity. Some people definitely like play themselves towards like specific roles. So Cole has been an attorney at every single tournament for his entire career. Right. I played a witness at one tournament. And so like, but like other people specialize as witnesses and when they specialize as witnesses, they specialize as specific types of witnesses. So like there are expert witnesses that are called expert witnesses are often doctors. They're doctors of varying fields, but those expert witnesses come in to give expert testimony. So the type of person you need to be able to deliver that, it takes a, di a bit of like expertise. You can, you can walk the walk, you can talk the talk, but for a lay witness, for example, a couple years ago, we had a case where um, it was an age discrimination case and it was at a media company. And one of the media interns was this like college senior. Her name was uh, like Kelly, like Kelly Dews or something like Kirby, Kirby Doolittle is what her name was. Kirby Doolittle. That's great. And they use like these like weird names and stuff like that. But like, 
Are they ethnically diverse? The they're getting is, better about yeah, it. Yeah, they're getting better. Okay. But they um, used to be just extraordinarily all like Anglo, Jamie's, Kelly's. Yep. Okay. Like. But but good old Kirby, good old Kirby could be played by basically like any of us because we're all college students, right? But like the way that the affidavit was written was this ditzy college <laughs> senior Aww. who yeah and so like there it, you can definitely play it up in terms of like what you are but sometimes you get typecasted so is are the people who join mock trial are they do they all want to be lawyers no not all of them uh we actually have a kid this year who's like theater major like going through his yeah. name is bobby and he's like a, a lot it's for it, the performance yeah he's thinking about it but he also just likes the performance of it there are yeah. lots of kids who like end with econ or they have like all sorts of other degrees and it's just it's something cool that they want to do it's really good for public speaking right you have sure. to go try to convince strangers you're someone you're not for three hours like 12 hours over a weekend so it's it's pretty broad but a vast majority of people like i would say at least two-thirds are thinking about legal profession yeah. and want that courtroom experience mark trial's always big on history and so like when you look at the history of our team we have people across the board you have people doing like cancer research for mit or you have people like working for like the department of justice like yeah department of justice yeah. um you have people working for homeland you have people like doing like like all a bunch of people in medicine like it's all over the board hmm. uh, but most of them are attorneys yeah so how do they score you hmm. they rank you one to ten based off entirely subjective whether or not they liked it they didn't like it like if they think you are better than the person you're directing they'll give you a couple extra points if they think the other attorney just absolutely like wiped the floor with you they'll drop you to like a six but, but judges have ranges, right? So, like, maybe my range of bad, like, really bad might be, like, a four. But, like, my my average is, like, a six. And I, and I go ahead and judge between a range. Other judges will, like, be way lower. And, like, they're really bad as, like, a one. But, like, their average score on the ballot's a four. It just very much varies. And so, like, that's your job to play to whatever judge walks into that room. And, it's your and how do you know that? You try to figure it out as you go through the round. A lot yeah. of it is like seeing a lot of judges will frown if they don't like something, they'll squint. A lot <laughs> of them like take off their glasses and like rub the bridge of their nose like this is the worst thing they've ever seen in their entire life. It's a lot about people reading. So Mark Trial teaches you a bunch of different of these skills, right? So the people reading is a big thing, but in general, like normally when you go to regions, right? Like you can tell like the different type of law that flies in that area, right? So Chicago's a little bit, like Chicago's an aggressive legal legal what? field i know who would have guessed i would not have guessed that <laughs> but like when you go to ohio to do mock trial tournaments it's all the theatrics so they, they they still want the law they still want like the tough attorneys and like the strong legal argumentation but they're about the theatrics but when you pop over to like notre dame for a tournament that's all theatrics they don't really care about the legal argument of the law <laughs> they want you to give them a show yeah and so like knowing where you're going and what you're trying to do mock trial was born in iowa so they want it straight laced they want the attorney presence. They want a clean legal argument. They're not necessarily looking for the flower, the bim, like, like the dazzling show. They just want clean mock trial. And so, like, knowing region to region, like, where you're going and what judges you're trying to cater for is an entirely different activity. Yeah. And, like, even when you come to a tournament in Chicago, who's coming to that tournament? Are a bunch of people coming from Iowa? Are a bunch of people coming from other areas? So it changes. So we're... Um Reza and I are going to keep talking about this for a couple more minutes, but our good friend Cole has to step out. So, Cole, thanks for showing up. I may call on you to come back in the future, but thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Have a good one. You too. Okay. okay. 
Now it's just me and you, and yeah. I can browbeat you some more about not taking any of my do classes. Do it all. Do it all. I can I can withstand it. Okay, so I, I, I still want to talk about Makhtar, and I want to talk about the scoring. So so they score the whole team 1 to 10, or each performer? Each performer. So there's 14 categories on a ballot. Your best ballot's 140. And so it starts, pre-trial doesn't get scored. So like all the little stuff you do in terms of like talking to the judge about like preferences, none of that's scored, but it definitely sets the pace for the round, right? If you have somebody who's super confident and polished in pre-trial, the judge is already thinking that this is the team that's going to win. But like opening statements is the first thing that's scored. And then opening statements is the first category. Last category is closing statements, but there's 14 in between. And so when I was talking to Cole about this earlier, he said something about teams doing really well and you took a slip off of them or a... Took a ballot off of them? Yes. Yeah. What the heck? What's he talking about? All right. So ballots in general are just like whether or not like like you win like that because there's two judges per round. So there's two ballots per round, uh, eight ballots in a tournament. So if you take a ballot off of like a really, really strong team, like it's like, hey, all right. like So that means you, you had a split decision by the judges. Yes. And like when you split with like powerhouse teams, like that's pretty, that's a pretty big thing. UIC used to be a powerhouse like a really 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 large mock trial powerhouse in like the early 90s and then they researched again in like the 2000s and then they researched again at the beginning of 2010 where we were in like national appearances at national appearances back to back and the team took a sort of slump probably around when i was coming to college like 2014 through 2016 is there a correlation there? yeah uh, you know <laughs> <laughs> we could talk about it i guess <laughs> you're really going for the throat you know i'm, no, just like, I'm totally kidding um but then During my sophomore year and junior year, we kind of started coming back. And so, like, we were really, really close to national births two years in a row during my sophomore and junior year. And so, like, that just ebb and flow there. But, yeah, so when, like, you take a ballot off a really, really strong team, it's pretty good, especially when you're an underdog. So UIC played an underdog role for a while. So even, so you have this score up to 140. Mm -hmm. Like, do you have to win by so much? Like, could it be like 120 to 119? So our our motto my junior year was one point better. Okay. The entire year, that's what we would chant before every round. One point better. Because it doesn't matter if you win by an inch or a mile. Literally just one point and you have a ballot. Seriously, that's what you would chant? Yeah. One point better. I mean, like, we wouldn't yell it, but, like, it was, like, our, like, it was our hype thing. It was your mo- Okay. Because the year before, during sectionals... We missed nationals by a singular point. So it became our chant. One point better. So you could you could get your eight ballots and and have won by eight points. Yeah. Or you could... Point get, differential is a tiebreaker as well. Okay. And so you could get seven ballots and not win. You could win but, by a hundred point point differential. Yeah. And just have crushed every single one of your opponents. So like the Ohio States of the world have large point differentials. And like they like they're winning ballots by like plus twenty five, which is absurd. If you win by like anything beyond six, it was a good whooping. Okay, yeah. but then but then if they get us that one of these split judgments, they they are, lose the ballot. Yeah, and ballot records the most important thing. Huh? Yeah. Interesting. So point differential doesn't come into play until like the second or third tiebreaker. Okay. Yeah. So is there corruption in the system? Are the judges bribable? So what I would say is that mock trial, the American Mock Trial Association, the governing body for mock trial, oh my gosh. is um, it's ran by a lot of like just old programs that are done historically well. 
And so the decisions that they've made historically have catered towards those large programs. So large programs are often like better able to succeed at mock trial, like systematically by, by the way of design. Okay. And so like, yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, the deck is stacked against the UICs of the world. Uh, yeah. And what's a big program, right? So if like, only nine of you are on the... A, a large program? Ten of you. I would say, like, large programs are defined normally by their coaching staff, and they are by the number of students, okay. but it often is a duality. So, like, UVA has, like, a 13-person coaching, 13 coaching staff. What? UIC has one coach. He's yeah. a public defender named Ryan Nolte. Yeah. Um, but, like... And I don't think we pay him very much. No. Um, <laughs> but, like, then you have, like, other schools... UVA has 13 people that they are paying to to coach their mock trial I have no team. idea if all of them are paid, but they definitely have a 13-person coaching staff. Miami and how many, how many, like, mock trialers are there? I mean, UVA ha- take, carries four teams the entire year. Maybe more. I, like, they have, a bunch of, they have a bunch of teams. A, they go A through D. And so do they go to different tournaments or they compete against each other sometimes? Um, I'm sure they have plenty of, like, in-house scrimmages. But, yeah, they all tra- they travel the country to compete. Like, mock trials is this huge, like, cult thing, definitely. But, like, <laughs> um, like you have teams, like, Northwestern, for example. I have a number of friends who are on Northwestern's team. And Northwestern, like, travels from east to west coast to compete in mock trial weekend to weekend. Yeah. And so is this a really good... So when you're applying to law school and you have mock trial in your in your resume, is that a, is that a really good thing? Is that really going to help you get into good programs? I think law schools see mock trial as probably the best thing you can do for your application. Like beyond just like your basic determinants of like GPA gets you placed, LSAT score is probably the biggest thing. Sure. Um, doing something like a competitive speaking activity like mock trial probably takes number three. And that's just because mock trial is such a valuable experience. You get like all of like the back ended understanding of how a trial actually comes to be, but you get that in person courtroom exposure, right? The way you think, the way you're forced to think in mock trial to be good at that activity is fundamental to being successful in law school. And that's all that I've heard, right? I'm not in law school yet. Right. But <laughs> in terms of like every everybody who's walked through UIC's doors and made made an appearance back, all of them. Every single one of them say that mock trial is the one thing that prepared them for law school different than anything else. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so <laughs> I think like just to go over like what mock trial could be. So like the prosecution team after the opening statement, they give their opening statement. Then the defense team gives their opening statement and the prosecution gives what's called their entire case in chief and their entire case in chief is them putting up all three of their witnesses to tell a story. And so there is a lot of cohesion that goes into the preparation for a tournament, right? You need to appropriately sell the judge a clean packaged story about where you're trying to take them in the direction you're trying to take your case. And so like that story takes a lot of time to put into it, right? Mock trial at UIC meets Tuesday, Thursday, 6 to 9 p.m. And like Thursdays are often spent in the daily center to be able to actually practice material in a courtroom. But the amount of time that it takes to be good at it takes way more than just 6 to 9 p.m. Sure. Um, you have to be working on this stuff constantly. It's just hours upon hours of just thinking about it, like which means that hours upon hours of reading this like 130-page case packet, like knowing each intricacy so that you can just think on it yeah, and just play with it in your head. So you said that they switch every other year, criminal and civil. Mm-hmm. Which do you prefer? I 
definitely prefer the criminal, but that's okay. because as an attorney, I'm a little bit more of like the aggressive, like cross examiner. Okay. And you can't really do that when all we're talking about is money. So like, well, you could. Eh, so last year, what happened? Last year's the case. The coffee was too hot. <laughs> yeah, McDonald's, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, so last year in the case, there was actually a dead body. Um, and so like. In a civil case? In a civil case. Oh. So the civil lawsuit was a negligence lawsuit. And so the basic way to describe it is think like a Jimmy Kimmel-esque show. A animal trainer is going to be going on Jimmy Kimmel to uh, like show off his chimpanzee. Sure. The chimpanzee ends up going crazy and kills one of the writers during <laughs> the pre-show rehearsal. Okay. And so there's a dead body. The writer's dead. But both people are suing each other. The animal trainer suing the like the studio because the studio had specific guidelines that they were supposed to follow, and the animal trainer saying that they didn't. So that's the negligence suit. And the studio saying they didn't. The animal trainer didn't bring a properly trained animal to the place, and so without the proper training, of course somebody would have died. And so it's a big, big old show of this like negligence suit going back and forth. And even Do you when, show pictures of a dead body like um, mauled by a chimpanzee. So there was no pictures of the dead um, body. Probably better right <laughs> for the trigger warnings that would happen oh, right fair. like okay, the fine. gore and everything um but there were like there was an autopsy report and so the way i would finish my cross-examination of the defendant the guy the animal trainer like i was often like text on points of like being too aggressive on him so then i figured out a way to tailor it down and be more of that like softer tone and the way i'd finish my cross-examination was by reading a portion of the autopsy report i still have it memorized go ahead <laughs> It's um, uh, the so you would you would enter the report, you'd hand it to him and then you'd start by reading. And it was the victim. The victim's body had laceration across his neck and arms. The chimpanzee was attacking the, the chimpanzee was attacking the victim for three to five minutes. That's a long time exactly. to be attacked by a chimpanzee. And so the idea is that he stood there and did, did nothing. Right. And that's how it ended for three to five minutes. And then I would let the, I would sit there in the silence. No further questions. And then I would walk up to the guy and take off the favor. But like the, the you'd have the entire courtroom yeah. just kind of hanging on that three to five minutes. You stood there because the idea is that like all the questions leading up is you stood there. You did nothing. Your chimpanzee was too powerful even for you. And then you bring the autopsy report in. Yeah. Okay. On that somewhat gruesome uh, (laughs) (laughs) point, uh, our time is up. And so I'm going to wrap up the politics classroom. Thank you, Reza, for Thank you so much for having uh, me. Hopefully people come out and join mock trial next year. It's a really great activity. It's a lot of fun. Okay. (laughs) So I want to thank all of my guests today, Cole Gunter, Reza Hawk, Norma Maruzzi and Kave Asani. Thank you so much for all of you coming on the Politics Classroom. For our listeners, if you have any ideas of topics you'd like me to cover or experts you'd like me to interview, please send your suggestions to me on Twitter at Dr. Floros. I'll be back next Tuesday from 3 to 5 p.m. with returning guest, Professor Evan McKenzie. Professor McKenzie and I will revisit our previous topic of impeachment, and perhaps expand the conversation to include executive privilege and Congress's war powers authority. So that should be a really interesting conversation. You've been listening to The Politics Classroom on UIC Radio, where music and culture ignite. That's all I've got for this week. I'm Professor Floros. Class dismissed.